Do watch your step, Romana, said the doctor. There's a bit of a drop. I almost shrieked with surprise and clutched at the doorframe. A bit of a drop? The TARDIS was awkwardly positioned on a narrow ledge of dark stained planks. One blue side leaned against a curved surface of the same heavily stained wood. Twenty metres below, an expanse of scrubby lawn was dotted randomly with bizarre statues. The doctor strode away around the walkway, his boots thumping on the woodwork. He sniffed abruptly. Ah, yes. Norfolk, he declared. You can tell that from analysing the air? I can tell that from the readings in the TARDIS, he replied, and beckoned furiously with one hand. Hurry up, Romana. I studied my feet. From what the doctor had told me about our destination, I'd thought it prudent to choose what he described as Wellington boots. I groaned. They might have been a good choice for a muddy lawn, but I didn't like the idea of walking along this hazardous ledge in them. The TARDIS listed alarmingly as I stepped out. It pivoted on the edge of the planking, paused as though making up its mind, and then tumbled over the edge. I winced and closed my eyes. There was a dull thud as the TARDIS struck the lawn. I did say you should hurry up. The doctor's voice was close to my ear. Are you sure those boots are suitable for an observatory? I almost fell off the edge with surprise. Is this a good time to swap fashion tips? And what do you mean, observatory? Well, we're obviously on the outer edge of a wooden astronomical observatory, built in the grounds of a country estate. We don't want you traipsing mud through it, do we? Hmm? Come on. We'll find the next segment of the key to time, pop back down to the TARDIS and be on our way before you can say kitten heel. Kitten heel? I asked him. Romana, this is no time to swap fashion tips. Look, the observatory doors are open so we have a way in. He was already clambering into the building. Which direction does the tracer indicate for the segment? I shuffled along the walkway after him, trying not to look down. I thought you had the tracer. His head reappeared from inside the building. What? I thought you had the tracer. You always have the tracer. He peered up the sleeve of my dress as though to prove me wrong. Romana, you don't have the tracer. I glared after him. Doctor, you left it plugged into the TARDIS console. I edged past the cylindrical end of a large telescope. It was a relief to be inside and out of the chill wind. The room smelled of polished wood and static electricity. My eyes slowly adjusted to the lower level of light in the domed interior. The doctor's voice was close again. Let me do the talking. I'm becoming an expert at listening, I told him. A flight of open tread wooden steps led down past the telescope to the floor. Banks of computer equipment stood incongruously beside a display of antique telescopes. And there was an odd sort of wardrobe with wires leading from it. Beside that, two figures stared up at us in astonishment. I had always worried about someone trying to break into my observatory. That's why I'd posted my guard in the hallway. But the last thing I'd expected was for intruders to break in from the roof. I could see that Professor Urpik was astonished too, but I gestured for him to stay calm beside me. And what extraordinary intruders these two were! A bizarrely dressed man and an elegant woman. 
Despite his ridiculously long woolen scarf, the man negotiated his way easily down the spiral staircase. He pulled off his crumpled, wide-brimmed hat, stuffed it into his pocket, and looked around with an insouciant grin. I soon changed my first impression of the woman. Her long white evening gown may have been graceful, but she thumped inelegantly down the stairs, and I saw she was wearing an oversized pair of green Wellington boots. The man bellowed, How do you do? I'm the doctor. This is my friend Romana, and this is clearly a very impressive statuette. He gestured admiringly at the monkey sculpture that sat beneath a spotlight on a far shelf. See no evil, hear no evil. What is the meaning of this? I protested. Speak no evil, continued the doctor relentlessly. He strode across the floor to stand beside the professor's equipment. Now, here's something worth talking about. A very splendid zenith telescope on an Altazimuth mount. With a liquid mirror, I shouldn't wonder. What do you think, Romana? Almost certainly. Romana clumped down the final step and surveyed the room with a single imperious glance. Level four civilization, so it would be constructed from one of the low melting alloys of gallium. Who are you two? What are you doing in my observatory? The man stuck out his arm for a handshake, noticed my hands and withdrew it again. We're visitors to the area, aren't we, Romana? Conducting a tour of astronomical landmarks, and... No, you're not, I interrupted. No, we're not, he admitted at once. I'm rather afraid we've lost our way. But we've found you. And you are? The professor bumbled forward. This is Lady Millicent Ferrell. She owns the estate. I'm Professor Julian Erpik. I work for her ladyship here at the Ferrell Observatory. He looked to me for advice. Shouldn't we call the police? I shook my head. Let's see what they have to say for themselves. Erpik studied the newcomer curiously. Are you from the village, Mr... Call me doctor, said the man. Why do you mention the village? There have been lots of recent visitors since they began to build the new houses. I hissed my disapproval of this inane chatter. There have been lots of recent intruders since they started building those houses so close to my estate. And what do you know about them, Erpik? Professor Erpik blinked behind his pebble-thick spectacles. I popped out for some groceries. I pay you handsomely to work here, not waste your time in the plough and harrow. I was pleased to see Erpik flinch at my tone. You have everything you need here on the estate, apart from company, he muttered. (laughs) In the village? What need do you have for the company of strangers? At this point, I saw that our two latest strangers had made their way around the telescope. The doctor and Romana stooped over the bank of computer equipment that flanked the observatory's panelled walls. This is very advanced for a level four civilization. These relativistic equations go way beyond classical physics. They reconcile the direct application of gravitation with quantizing techniques. The doctor nodded approvingly. You notice that? Very good. But the professor's obviously stuck on this part because the conformal transformations don't work for two-dimensional space-time symmetries without going to a further two dimensions. The doctor slapped his forehead and the sound echoed around the room. You're missing something much more obvious, Romana. Oh, really? Romana's tone suggested she hadn't overlooked anything and didn't like being told otherwise. Well, an astronomical observatory shouldn't need to use vertex operator algebras. This is just a simple zenith telescope. On an altazimuth mount, the doctor reminded her. Viewing in three dimensions. So how could it possibly see through time? Doctor, are we sure this is a level four civilization? 
The doctor was starting to make frantic shushing gestures at his friend Romana, but it was already too late. I could see Professor Erpik's eyes widening even larger behind his spectacled lenses. You understand this? No, more than that. You can see what I have been struggling with. He looked pleadingly at me. Perhaps they can help. The doctor blew out a long, dismissive sigh. Ah, oh, well, we'd love to stay and chat, wouldn't we, Romana? But time is pressing. We have another half-dozen observatories on our schedule today. You're not tourists, I said. Ah, yes, he agreed. I saw that he had removed something from his pocket, a small, thin piece of metal. He was raising it to his lips. I lifted my arm, and the thing twitched out of the doctor's fingers and flew across the room into my hand. It made a little metallic chinking noise as it struck my palm. I considered what I'd caught. It was a dog whistle, but with some additional componentry. Perhaps it contained a piezoelectric transmitter. I briefly considered crushing it between my fingers. No, I decided. I would study it more closely later. So I carried it across the room and placed it on a small desk. Now then, doctor, I began. Only Professor Erpik stared back at me. They just left, he explained sheepishly. Sneaked out. I slammed my hand onto the desk and had the satisfaction of hearing the wood splinter. And you just let them go? They're probably wandering about in the grounds. Erpik's feeble excuse died on his lips. Shall I call the police now? I stalked across the room and jerked the door open. In the hallway, I saw the medieval knight, propped in its frame by the exit doors, my guard at the entrance. With a clank of metal, the knight stiffened to attention and brandished its spiked halberd in readiness. No need for the police, Erpik. Those intruders won't wander my grounds for long. It's impossible to tiptoe in Wellington boots. I struggled in mine as we fled from the observatory. At ground level, the statues I'd seen from the ledge above seemed even more bizarre. The grassy area was dotted with them, each a stylized figure fashioned from flat planes of steel, twisted into abstract representations of people, birds and spiders. We circled the observatory towards where the TARDIS had fallen. Come on, Romana, called the doctor. I shall be glad to get the tracer, get the segment and get out of here. Oh. The TARDIS had dropped onto the lawn. Its doors were pressed flat against the grass. There was no way back in. But more disconcerting was the crowd of statues whose stylized limbs curled and knotted together over the TARDIS. Oh, doctor, it's as though someone twisted them into place after the TARDIS fell. He tugged at one experimentally. Oh, it's fixed fast, he said. I pondered the situation. Can't we get K-9 to rematerialise the TARDIS somewhere else? The last thing I said to him was stay, said the doctor. You know how literal he is. And my dog whistle is back in the observatory. It flew through the air into Lady Ferrell's hand. Doctor, how did she do that? A powerful electromagnet, maybe? Metal hands, said the doctor darkly. He kicked in frustration at the nearest statue. I wonder if these are her work. <laughs> I bet you're glad she didn't shake your hand, doctor. Yes, he replied. I imagine she has quite a firm grip on everything. I recognise the type. Classic narcissistic personality disorder, I told him. Perhaps she has, said the doctor. I smiled sweetly at him. 
I wasn't talking about her. The doctor crammed his hat onto his head. Romana, we need to prize the TARDIS free. I wonder if we can commandeer a digger from the village. That professor mentioned building work. I pointed across the expanse of lawn to a small group of sagging outbuildings. Perhaps there are tools in that old barn. You try there. I'll look in the village. Watch out for the gamekeeper. I told him I'd no idea what he was talking about. Man with a gun, shooting at foxes and badgers, he explained. Foxes and badgers? I asked. Local fauna. They won't harm you, so off you go. And with that, he loped off in the direction of the boundary wall. I took my own route towards the barn, squelching across the soggy lawn in a path that took me around another pair of statues. When I got closer, I saw it wasn't a pair. It was a single statue, with a dead body trapped within it. (gasps) The victim's face was frozen in fear and surprise. His stained sackcloth bag contained some kind of trap, presumably for catching animals. But it was the man who'd been snared. His fading corduroy jacket and shabby shirt were stained red with blood where the statue's sharp limbs had pierced him. It couldn't be an accident. It was as though the statue had seized the man and its spikes had grown through him. However, I had no time to worry about this further. A clattering noise announced the arrival of a group of knights in armour who swiftly surrounded me. How rude of you to run off like that, Romana. We hardly had time to talk. I was surprised to hear Lady Ferrell's voice, muffled behind the knight's visor. I wasn't sure I could outrun my captors while in these stupid, heavy boots. I tried not to show my fear. What do you want with me? I think you can help Professor Urpik. What if I tell you that I don't want to help him? What if I tell you this isn't a request? There were two of you. Where's the doctor? Oh, he went ahead. I couldn't keep up in these boots. He won't get far. Bring her to me. Immediately. Before I could work out what she meant, one armor-suited figure seized me by the arms and dragged me off across the estate grounds. The knights jangled obediently into the observatory. Ramana struggled feebly in their iron grip. Professor Urpik continued his work quietly beside me, too nervous to intervene. He eyed Ramana surreptitiously from his workstation, biting back his protests. Ramana was not so shy. Get these brutes off me! Don't struggle and they won't hurt you. There's a poor man outside who might have disagreed with you, killed within the grounds of your estate. What makes you think I don't know about him? I enjoyed her shocked reaction. There was no way out of the room for her. So I let the knights release her. Who needs a gamekeeper when I have my statues? And these chivalrous guards. Why do your animals need guards, chivalrous or otherwise? What makes you think they're guarding my animals? I was disappointed that she'd regained her composure so swiftly. She was staring at my hands, so I turned them palm upward. Usually such a gesture would be reassuring, but I knew that in my case it would be more frightening. I thought those were gauntlets because of the knights here. But they're not, are they? Your hands are actually made of metal. You must be the only person in the village who didn't know that. What makes you think I'm from the village? I haven't thought that since I first heard you speak. I smiled as Romana acknowledged she'd only confirmed my suspicions. Professor Urpik sidled over. He whispered conspiratorially as though we might be overheard. Is she from NASA? Are the Americans finally going to help? America? 
<laughs> She's traveled further than that, Professor. Why do you say that? What did you call this place, Romana? A level four civilization, wasn't it? Oh, yes. You and your odd friend know much more than you're saying. You're both going to be a big help to Professor Erpik here. Where is he? I really have no idea. I'm not talking to you. The other two knights entered the laboratory. If I hadn't been so distracted by Romana, I'd have known already. They'd clearly failed to find the doctor and returned empty-handed. I somehow managed to retain my temper and walked calmly out of the observatory to investigate for myself. Millicent flew into a sudden rage when she saw that her knights had not captured the doctor. She practically raced from the observatory, not caring what she knocked over. Professor Erpik winced as delicate equipment smashed across the parquet flooring. Two knights abruptly backed out of her way and halted either side of the exit. I took my chance to flick up the visor on the nearest. How is that possible? I'd expected to see the sweating face of some brawny man. Maybe some intercom device in there too. That would explain how I'd heard Lady Ferrell's muffled voice inside it earlier. But I could see right through to the metal at the back of the helmet. The whole thing was an empty suit of armour. For a moment, I almost believed that I'd mistaken a display mannequin for one of the knights who dragged me here. Until the empty suit brusquely raised one metal gauntlet and shut the visor. Professor Erpik knelt by an equipment table to examine the shattered items. One hand tugged fretfully at what was left of his grey hair. Oh, this is not good. Not good at all. He seemed surprised and grateful when I helped him collect the pieces. I adopted what I hoped was a reassuring tone. She probably didn't feel her hands knocking against it when uh, she left in such a hurry. He blinked at me doubtfully. I don't think Metal Millie has a single feeling in her entire body, he said bitterly. What? Her, her whole body is artificial. He gave me a curious look. It might as well be, he said, and I realised what he'd really meant. After his incautious comment about his employer, I was keen to see if the professor would volunteer anything else about her. Perhaps if I offered to help, he would be encouraged to say more before she returned. I remembered what I'd noticed on first entering the observatory. So I made a few comments about his application of gravitation with quantizing techniques. The kind of observations a Gallifreyan kindergarten teacher might make to a twelve-year-old. And that got his attention. In return... Professor Erpik told me why the locals called his employer Metal Millie. Before she married the late Lord Ferrell, she'd been the American astronaut Millicent Drake. The professor was surprised that I couldn't remember the famous disaster 15 years ago when a meteoroid struck her shuttle. Millicent was the only survivor, and only barely survived at that. Hence her prosthetic limbs. Millicent was devastated by the ending of her NASA career, Unable to realise her ambition of travelling the solar system, she resolved instead to travel the world, which is how she'd arrived in England and met his lordship. She'd taken up sculpture, fashioning the sorts of pieces that I'd already seen in the grounds. They're everywhere, the professor told me, and pointed out the sculpture that the doctor had spotted earlier. It looked like three caricatured simians. One concealed its eyes, another its ears, while the third one covered its mouth with both paws. An odd effect of the spotlight made it look as though two of the monkeys were blinking. Once we'd reinstated the professor's computer alongside the telescope, I made a further correction in one of his relativistic equations. 
The telescope's alignment still seemed odd, so I scribbled down a conversion of the readings to galactic coordinates and puzzled over why they seemed so familiar. Professor, that's a strange location to track. Even the most advanced telescope in a level four civilization couldn't see what's actually there. Level four civilization? asked Professor Erpik. You've said that before. Possibly too often, I realised. Why would Lady Ferrell spend good money to build this place in Norfolk? The climate here doesn't make it an ideal location on your world. Uh, this world. Uh, Earth. Erpik laughed uneasily. <laughs> it's not ideal for an observatory, but Lady Ferrell insists that the Earth alignment must be precise. That's when I worked out the reason. We're exactly below a geotemporal orbit. Directly above us must be where Millicent Drake's shuttle collided with the meteoroid. That explains the alignment and these circuit connections, but there's a key component missing here, isn't there, Professor? The Professor nodded eagerly, delighted by my cleverness. I was so worried. I could see no way of completing the work in time until you arrived and set things straight. I asked him what he meant. Lady Ferrell was very insistent that my work was completed by tonight. Her ladyship said she would bring the final component and that the deadline could not change. What deadline, Professor? And what final component? What has Lady Farrell asked you to do here? What a lot of questions you have, Romana. Romana and Urpik whirled to face me as I re-entered the observatory. Their guilty faces would have betrayed them, even if I didn't already know what they'd been discussing. I handed a box to Urpik. He took it from me reverentially and opened the lid with care. His eyes widened in surprise and delight. Romana saw what it was, too. A meteorite. Not just any meteorite. Erpik, connect that to the transport cabinet. It's part of the meteoroid that struck your shuttle. You're a smart lady. What happened? Our shuttle was supposed to pass through the meteoroid's tail. The calibrations were checked and rechecked. There was minimal danger. But as it approached, the thing suddenly changed course. So your calibrations were wrong? My calibrations were perfect. The meteoroid changed course. I was taking the readings. I saw them change. If your shuttle was struck by a meteoroid, it should have been destroyed. It somehow attached itself to the outside of the shuttle and survived re-entry. Though only you survived the return journey. The other crew were expendable. I'm made of stronger stuff. Literally, from the looks of you. My hands, yes. Other joints, my pacemaker. But I have a will of iron, too. I don't doubt it. Hurry along, Professor. Get that meteorite in place. It wasn't hard for me to steal the fragment from NASA. And they have no idea I have it. They were too busy pensioning me off to see me as any danger. I knew Romana was working things out. She'd corrected the professor's work earlier. There was something brilliant about her. Something otherworldly. Something dangerous, too. I'd already decided she was expendable. So, is the device ready yet? No. There's still an unresolved variant in the continuously differentiable bijective map. Is this true, Professor? Oh, don't just dither around. Fix it. Or get her to fix it. I can't. Can't? Or won't. I was never very good on the invariance of physical laws under arbitrary coordinate transformations. The person you really need is the doctor. He's the expert. Wherever he is... Fortunately, I found out exactly where he is. I have eyes in the village. Take her. In case he needs persuading, my knights will take you to fetch him. The empty suits of armour dragged me protesting from the observatory. 
At either side, a knight gripped my upper arm and propelled me over the darkening grounds, a halberd and an axe held stiffly in their other hands. We left through the estate's wrought iron gates. On the village outskirts, skeletal scaffolding marked out the frames of new houses under construction. Attendant diggers and cranes stood silently in the early evening light, as though abandoned in the mud by their operators at the end of the working day. Ahead of us, thatched roofs flanked a meandering route to the village centre. I later discovered that while I was making this odd journey, the doctor was asking questions in the plough and harrow, a building that I would subsequently learn was a public house. As usual, the doctor was the centre of attention. His original plan to locate lifting equipment had turned into a discussion with the villagers, including Mr Clark the barman and a grizzled local called Andrews. The doctor did explain to me later what a barman was, though I'm not sure I understand even now. The doctor wanted to gather information about the feral estate before he returned to the observatory. At first, the locals seemed wary. You've got a posh voice, like her ladyship, Clark explained apologetically. There's bound to be a bit of suspicion. But with that infuriatingly easy way of his, the doctor soon won them over. Before they knew it, he was beating all comers at something called darts. Between games, the local postman, Mr Stanford, explained why the villagers hated Lady Ferrell. So different to his lordship. His family lived in the village for generations. Grandfather was a war hero. Stanford squinted through a nearby casement window and indicated a statue on the village green. That's a memorial to Sir Hector Ferrell. A true iron-hearted hero. Not like Metal Millie, Clark the barman tutted. Oh, she can't help that she has artificial hands, can she? I think she's completely artificial, scoffed Andrews. Well, Lady Farrell wasn't always disliked, said Clark. Remember how folk loved the idea of a famous American astronaut living in our village? She was a sculptor, see, after that terrible space accident. Did commissions for his lordship's estate. Wooed him and married him. When he died, she inherited the estate. That's when things changed, Stanford glugged at his pint. That's right. All that development she had done. Rebuilt the old observatory. Farrell's folly, we call it. She squandered his lordship's money and gave nothing back to the community. The postman was warming to his theme now. She even shut down the historical reenactment society. I led the group, see. Lady Ferrell threw us out and didn't even let us keep the armour. He shuffled over to the bar and opened a storage cupboard. We have to make do with this old tap these days. Wooden swords and staves. In that case, I wonder who's wearing the armour, pondered the doctor. No one's wearing it. She locked it all away, said Stanford. Well, it looks like they're wearing armour to me, the doctor pointed out of the window. Why don't we go and ask them? My bizarre armoured escort dragged me past a half-built cottage, surrounded with scaffolding poles as we approached the village green. At the centre of the neatly trimmed area of grass stood a metal sculpture of a broad-shouldered man wearing a feathered hat. The knights faced this statue. The description on the plinth read Sir Hector Ferrell. I barely registered this before the burly iron figure stepped down from its pedestal and stalked towards me. Sir Hector's metal feet churned divots out of the soft turf. 
Doctor, where are you? The statue's impassive metal face cracked into a ghastly grin, and one arm indicated a nearby building. The front door of the Plough and Harrow creaked open on unoiled hinges. It knocked into a postman's loaded bicycle propped against the wall. A familiar face peered out through the door. Doctor! But he vanished back inside almost immediately. I thought he would surrender to us, but he's disappointed me. I was astonished to hear the statue speak in Millicent Ferrell's voice. When you said you had eyes in the village, this wasn't quite what I'd expected. The last eyes you will ever see, Romana. Your friend isn't coming to your rescue. So your use is at an end. Oh, you can't be serious. Knights! Chop off her head. The doctor hadn't abandoned me. he disappeared back into the plough and harrow to organise a rescue. He flung open the store cupboard. To the astonishment of nearby customers, he began to grab wooden swords and shields and toss them across the room. What are you doing? asked a nervous Stanford. To your post! cried the doctor. You and your reenactment society are going to help me rescue a damsel in distress. The doctor... Andrew, Stanford, Clark and a motley band of other occupants armed themselves with makeshift weaponry. Within moments, they burst from the building and into the street. The knights were surprised by the sudden attack. Even Sir Hector snapped his metal head abruptly to one side, comically distracted by the ragged surge of ill-equipped villagers. The doctor led the charge, wheeling a wooden sword, his scarf flying around him in the rush across the village green. The knights turned clumsily, their heavy armour twisting to face the attackers, but they were barely able to lift their swords before they were battered by the onrushing crowd. The villagers showed more enthusiasm than technique, but it wasn't long before a few well-placed blows had knocked the empty suits of armour into pieces on the grass. A hefty blow from a wooden stave connected with the statue's legs and it toppled to the ground. Millicent's anger hissed from Sir Hector's lips. The villagers stared in amazement at the dismembered knights and then began to shout with delight. Come on, Romana, cried the doctor. He grabbed my hand and yelled to the villagers, No time to admire your handiwork! Before the villagers' astonished eyes, the discarded pieces of armour twitched, slid across the grass and reassembled. The knights clambered back to their feet, brandishing their savage metal weapons again. Retreat! bellowed the doctor. The villagers needed no further encouragement. They broke into a shambling run back to the plough and harrow. 
The villagers scuttled back into the pub, pathetically pleased with themselves at their intervention. The doctor supervised them, securing a beam across the door. We need to secure this building against the knights, the doctor instructed his shabby army. Close those shutters over the street windows. Quickly now. The postman, Stanford, stopped partway through securing a heavy wooden shutter. He peered out at the village green and said he thought they were safe. The knights had collapsed again, and even the statue was just lying on the grass. Clark the barman muttered darkly about vandalism. Far worse than vandalism, I'm afraid, said the doctor somberly. He hurried to the fireplace, beckoning Romana to join him so they could converse surreptitiously in the flickering light. Let's try to keep the locals out of this, the doctor told her. Quite right. They're obviously a primitive lot. Just look at what they have on the menu. The doctor patiently explained that Plowman's lunch didn't mean the locals were cannibalistic and that there was no trace of local fauna in a drink called Badger's Old Peculiar. I'll tell you what is peculiar, Doctor. The way my night has caught simply collapsed, as if all their energy had just left them. Energy, yes, pondered the Doctor. Must take a great deal of concentration to animate such heavy items. Wouldn't you say, Romana? He barely paused to let her answer. I'd say that Professor Erpic is behind this. Well, the knights and that statue were speaking in Lady Ferrell's voice. I doubt Lady Ferrell is much of a ventriloquist, replied the Doctor. He could see Romana was mystified. He tried to explain about people who threw their voices over long distances, though that confused her even more. Suddenly, he gave a great shout of delight. Yes! That's it! Long distances! It's the observatory, Romana! Did you notice where that splendid-looking telescope was pointed? I made a note of the galactic coordinates Professor Opic was scanning. See? The Cronquist system, hissed the doctor, then clapped his hand over his mouth as though the pub regulars might overhear him. A brutal, acquisitive race, and powerfully psychokinetic. That meteoroid could have spun into Earth orbit after passing through the Conquest system. Romana told the Doctor about the collision that had ended my space mission, and suggested there could be a connection. Then the conversation took a more intriguing turn as they discussed something called the key to time, and a segment that they were trying to locate. Unfortunately, that's exactly the moment when the Doctor spotted me in the fireplace. The Doctor abruptly stopped talking, and shushed me with a raised hand. He was so emphatic that the villagers around us fell silent too. He pointed to a clutter of equipment beside the fire grate. A long poker was propped beside a charred pair of tongs. A metal fireplace ornament in the shape of a dog held a shovel and a tatty brush between its paws. The dog's head was cocked to one side as though listening to us. And then its metal eyelids blinked. The doctor was a blur of movement. He sprang forward, his scarf flailing, the ends singed by flames. He seized the ornament and dashed over to the nearest shuttered window. The dog growled and snapped at him with its metal teeth, but the doctor held it at arm's length. With his free hand, he practically yanked the window from the casement, pitched the snapping dog outside, and slammed and barred the window. Doctor, that metal dog was alive! The doctor grinned hugely. Oh, Romana, I don't think a metal dog is of any surprise to you or me. He slapped his forehead. Metal dog? Of course! The Cronquist are a metal-based race. I think you mean that they have an affinity for ferromagnetic crystalline structures. The doctor snapped in exasperation. They can control iron. That's good enough for me. His voice trailed off as he looked apprehensively around the pub. The air seemed to quiver. A blizzard of small metal objects leapt from their places and flew across the room. 
Cutlery, darts, metal ashtrays, all manner of dangerous items whizzed around, slicing through soft furnishing, spearing into uncovered flesh, thudding into panelled walls. Astonished locals threw themselves to the beer-stained carpet or crouched fearfully under chipped furniture, blooded and terrified beneath the deadly hail of metal. It's ours thereafter. It'll stop once we've left the room. Quick, over there. I gestured towards the door at the far end of the bar. Out of our way, Mr Stanford, yelled the doctor at a uniformed figure blocking our exit. He showed no sign of moving, so the doctor bundled him ahead of us through the door. The doctor leaned heavily against the closed oak door. Darts and a fire poker whacked against the other side. Then there was silence, apart from the occasional sob from a frightened customer. The doctor jammed a wooden chair up against the door handle. We were in the kitchen of the plough and harrow. It was cooler and less smoky than the bar. A refrigerator hummed in one corner, and a figure groaned on the quarry-tiled floor. Romana, this is Mr Stanford, declared the doctor. He's the village postman. Stanford brushed himself down, picked himself up and glared at the doctor. What the hell is going on? Lady Ferrell can orchestrate ferromagnetic crystalline structures. For some reason, my explanation didn't clarify things for him. Metal Millie, the doctor said. You were more right than you could possibly have realised, Mr Stanford. She can control metal. Very unusual. Very clever. Very dangerous. Doctor, are you thinking what I'm thinking? A rack of metal pans hung from the beamed ceiling. A stainless steel sink sparkled in a spotlit work unit. By the draining board stood a wooden block that contained a set of chopping and dicing knives. Lady Ferrell said she had eyes everywhere. At least there are some things here that aren't metal. I picked up a breadboard and waggled it at the doctor to make my point. Barely had I spoken than the saucepans began to rattle in their rack, as though there was an earth tremor. She's worked out where we are, and she doesn't need to see us. All she has to do is fling those knives around the room and we'll be sliced and diced and served to the locals. The locals are not cannibals, the doctor reminded me. A wrought iron radiator on the firewall flexed and pinged against its wall mount. Let's debate the local diet some other time, Doctor. Time to leave. The knife block jiggled as the knives worked their way free. Run! This time, Stanford didn't need a shove. He sprang across the tile floor and threw the door into the hallway. A cleaver hurled itself across the room and embedded itself in the wall plaster by my head. I twisted back to see three chopping knives spinning through the air. Instinctively, I held the breadboard up in front of my face. The knife sank into the board with sufficient force to crack it right across. I flung the board away, knives and all, and it skittered across the tiles to the fridge. I dashed out and slammed the door. The doctor and I pounded upstairs. There was no sign of Stanford in the first bedroom. No sooner had we opened the door than the metal four-poster bed bucked and reared like a frightened animal and lurched at us. We ran back onto the landing where the bed couldn't reach us. Stanford yelled from somewhere nearby. We found him in the next smaller bedroom. The scattered remains of breakfast had spilled across the carpet. The metal tray on which it had stood was now in mid-air, repeatedly smacking Stanford across the head. I grabbed something hanging on the wall and used it to batter the tray to the carpet. The doctor kicked the agitated tray into the hall and slammed the door. Very good, Romana, said the doctor. You beat it into submission with a brass bed warmer. Hmm. The carpet was strewn with the former contents of the tray. And this teapot is silver. 
so she can't control any metal, just iron or iron alloys. We quickly scanned the room for other dangerous items before we slumped down on the faded candlewick bedspread. Doctor, how is she controlling the iron? It can't be a coincidence that the tracer brought us here, he said. <gasps> the meteorite! Lady Ferrell said it was out of the ordinary. Doctor, do you think it's the segment? The doctor nodded solemnly. It must also have been in contact with the Cronquist before it reached Earth. Now Lady Ferrell is imbued with its power, or controlled by it. From the look of that equipment in the observatory, Doctor, I think the Cronquist are using Lady Ferrell to get to Earth. The Doctor sprang up from the bed and over to the bedroom window. We have to stop her. We must get back to the Ferrell estate. The Doctor was first out of the bedroom window and slithering down the lead drainpipe. Stanford and I followed. I tried to concentrate on my handhold, but we soon came to a halt. The doctor gestured silently at the scene below us. I reluctantly peered down. Four empty suits of armour had resurrected themselves from their collapsed piles. They tramped their way around the building. Sir Hector strutted stiff-legged after them, directing their progress. The suits of armour struggled noisily up the alley that separated us from the next building. That was an old barn, surrounded by scaffolding and plank walkways, where workmen had been detaching its corrugated roof. Jump across, urged Stanford. The scaffolding is made of metal. Besides, the knights can't reach us from down there. Why have they revived? The question should be, why did they fall apart in the first place, replied the doctor. Perhaps Lady Ferrell can only control a certain amount of metal at once. Maybe her batteries are running low. Sir Hector and two knights took up position below us to block our route. Abruptly, the other two knights collapsed into a lifeless heap of metal. That can't be good. What else is she going to do? Old stone sundered on the barn opposite. A sheet of corrugated iron roof peeled itself off the joists. It shimmied and shivered as it threatened to launch across at us. There was no way we could scramble back through the bedroom window in time. I gripped onto the lead drainpipe, my cheek pressed against the cold brickwork, waiting for the blow to fall. But as the corrugated sheet came free, the top edge of the attached wall crumbled and fell onto the planks and scaffolding. Instead of flying towards us, the iron sheet slipped down and took a chunk of the barn with it. Stone chips showered us as the wall collapsed, dragging down the scaffold and planks. As the dust settled, we could make out the twitching remains of suits of armour beneath a tangled pile of wooden stone. We took our chance and clambered down the rest of the drainpipe. By skirting the collapsed wall, we avoided the clutching arms that were all that was now visible of the buried knights. Sir Hector stared at us. Powerless to intervene as we hastened round the plough and harrow and onto the village green. An awful sight greeted us. Half a dozen customers had tried to escape from the building, presumably thinking the knights had gone. But they'd been proved horribly wrong. Stanford shook off the shock first. He seized his bicycle, which was propped against the wall. He leapt onto the saddle, hunched over the handlebars and began to pedal furiously down the road. Parcels and letters scattered from his postbag onto the tarmac. As Stanford approached the junction, his whole body jolted upright. 
The bicycle slid to a halt in a gravel driveway. With a thrill of horror, I saw that the bike's handlebars had curled back on themselves and twisted around his wrists and lower arms. Stanford struggled in vain. The bicycle dragged him across the driveway. It bumped vertical again, jerking the helpless postman upright in front of the studded oak front door. With a whip-crack sound, the bolts and studs from the front door flew out of their places and riddled Stanford like bullets. The handlebars released their awful grip on him, and his body was flung onto the gravel. I glanced wildly around, looking for metal anywhere, identifying possible threats. Pylons loomed at the far end of the village. I could almost hear the power humming in their cables. Nearby, stiffly standing street lamps began to light up as the evening drew in. The doctor grabbed my hand and we started across the village green. A grinding crash brought us to a halt. A construction vehicle threw itself onto its side. The yellow digger plunged its claw-like front bucket into the soft turf of the green and dragged itself forward. The message was clear. No exit there. We turned back to the plough and harrow. Sir Hector rounded the corner and seemed to be grinning. Perhaps we could skirt round him and escape back down the alleyway. But now two figures flanked him. They were battered and dented, though still recognisable. Still deadly. An assortment of remaining bits of metal salvaged from the collapsed building had thrown themselves together into an ad hoc assembly of mismatched armour. Their lethal weapons were raised in warning. No way out. With a soft engine growl and a hiss of tyres, a vintage car drew up at the curb beside us. That's a Dolomite straight eight, said the doctor. Pre-war, I shouldn't wonder. Very impressive. At the wheel sat Lady Millicent Ferrell, her face a light in triumph. I raised my hands in the air and nudged the doctor to do the same. You can admire the transport more closely in a moment, doctor. All right, we'll come quietly. Just leave the rest of these villagers alone. Very wise, Romana. Get in the car. There's work for you to complete, and time is getting short. Throughout the short journey to the observatory, I heard the Cronquist in the corner of my mind. Demanding. Insistent. Urging me on. No point telling them that driving stick shift made these country lanes difficult to take at speed. When the car pulled up in the driveway, I reached out with the Cronquist's power to draw my abstract metal sculptures across the lawn. They scuttled on their makeshift legs, grim metal spiders chaperoning the doctor and Romana to the observatory. As we went in, I noticed a large blue trunk lying on the lawn. Romana was pointing to it, but the doctor tugged her arm to warn her about my spider creatures. That blue box would have to wait. Professor Erpik appeared displeased when I returned to the observatory with my captives. If he'd known what I'd heard them saying in the pub through the device of that dog-shaped ornament, the professor would have had good reason to feel vulnerable and dispensable. I have completed the adjustments you requested, Lady Farrell, said Erpik. His words sounded like a challenge, as though I could ever have doubted him. But the defiance in his eyes died when he saw what accompanied us. I had drawn one of my metal spider sculptures into the room. Erpik stared disbelievingly, 
backing away in horror. I pointed the doctor towards the professor's scientific apparatus. You will complete the software adjustments to the relativistic equations. The telescope must be aligned to the Cronquist system imminently. The doctor thrust his hands into his pockets, as though emphasizing that he was not going to put them anywhere near the computer keyboard. I don't think I need to, he admitted. Romana stood beside the professor. Professor Erpik has managed well enough. I'm afraid the doctor and I inadvertently gave him the hint he needed. Erpik was still mesmerized by the metal spider that lurked in the main doorway. You knew what you were doing, Professor, but until now I don't think you realized why. What is that thing? asked Erpik. Lady Ferrell is under the influence of the Conquest. They're an alien race from that part of the galaxy where you've aligned her telescope. <laughs> For a clever man, you can be very stupid, Professor. The Cronquist have an affinity for particular kinds of ferromagnetic metals, iron especially. They link to Millicent after the meteorite collision with her space shuttle, and they increase their hold on her after the reconstructive surgery, because she had so much metal in her body. I welcomed them. I can't travel through the stars anymore. But they can travel through me. I took the precious fragment of meteorite from its box and placed it reverently into the housing within the transportation cabinet from which the Cronquist would soon emerge. This evening, the stars are aligned for the first time in 5,000 years. My telescope will channel the power of this meteorite so that the Cronquist can transport their invasion force to Earth. It was like a light turned on in Professor Erpik's mind. I am the most common element on the planet. He gestured wildly towards the spider creature by the door. It's not just things like that monstrosity. Iron is abundant in the Earth's mantle and a primary constituent of the inner and outer cores. Control iron and you control this world. And the Cronquist are on their way, thanks to your work here, Professor. Erpik clutched at his head in despair. Then, in a blur of movement that belied his scrawny frame, the professor scuttled over to the telescope. He scattered nearby equipment and boxes across the floor as he scrabbled at the latch on the device that held the meteorite in place. I stepped swiftly forward and seized the professor, pinching his neck painfully between the metal fingers of my outstretched hand. I've never entirely trusted you, Urpik. You may not know that, but I've always had my eye on you. I twisted the professor's head so that he faced the metal monkey statue on the shelf opposite his workstation. To make my point, I made the see-no-evil figure uncover its eyes. It blinked at Erpik twice before I ended his misery. That's horrible. There was absolutely no need for that. Remove the body. I watched my metal spider traverse the observatory floor as it dragged the professor's corpse from the room. Then I saw the doctor had retrieved his little metal whistle from among the scattered items on the floor. He was blowing it fiercely. I concentrated on the whistle. It sprang across the room into my hand. I squeezed tightly, crushing the whistle in my palm. The Cronquist are on their way. But I still have time to kill you and your friend, doctor. You have outlived your usefulness. What is that? That's the TARDIS. Oh, that's very clever, Doctor. He may not have been able to get out the doors, but when you whistled, he could pilot the TARDIS here by locating the segment with the tracer. The Doctor barely seemed to be listening. He was dragging a heavy desk across the exit doors to the observatory. 
I was about to ask why he was trapping us in the room when a pummeling from the other side made me realise what he'd shut out. Your nasty pet spider can't get in to help you now, Millicent. Then I'll just have to kill you myself. We have our own pet, actually. Oh no, Doctor, he is made of... You can't let him out of the TARDIS. The Doctor nodded his agreement. Keep her ladyship away from that transport device, he yelled. And almost as an afterthought added, Watch out for her hands! Before I could protest, he was muttering, Stay, boy! Good dog! As he vanished through the TARDIS door. I stood between Lady Ferrell and the tall cabinet through which the Cronquist would soon arrive. The cabinet was already suffused with an ethereal, otherworldly glow. Lady Ferrell had abandoned any attempt to get her metal spider sculpture to break into the room. Instead, she clicked her fingers together in ghastly anticipation of an attack on me. I cast around the room for something to defend myself with. My eyes alighted on the display of old-fashioned telescopes. I seized the nearest. Its brass bulk weighed heavily in my hands. Your friend has abandoned you to die. I sincerely doubt that. We'll see. She sprang forward, her hands reaching for my throat. I fended her off with the telescope, smashing it against the cold metal of her outstretched, clawing hands. You can't stop this! The Cronquist will be in control! They may control you, Millicent, but they can't control everything. They can't control this brass telescope! Doctor! What are you doing? I was appalled! The Doctor dashed straight out of the TARDIS. In his hand, he clutched the tracer. It crackled and spat like a Geiger counter as it located the key to time segment within the alien light of the transportation cabinet. Doctor, you can't just convert the segment. That will turn it into a perfect transdimensional crystalline structure, an orderly pattern extending through four dimensions. It will suck the Cronquist invasion force to Earth in the twinkling of an eye. The Doctor studied the tracer, poised over the meteorite fragment. Ah, he said slowly. Well, obviously. Did you really think I was that stupid Romana? Hmm? I thought it prudent not to tell him what I really thought. Besides, Lady Ferrell had renewed her attack. Her dreadful fingers snapped at my face. But it was a ruse. When I swerved out of reach, Lady Ferrell fainted off to one side and reached the telescope controls. (laughs) You failed! (laughs) Doctor, give me the tracer. I practically snatched it from his hands. I studied the tracer's control buttons, made the necessary adjustments and motioned the doctor out of the way. He stepped aside with a look of irritation. I knew how he hated to be upstaged, so I handed the tracer back to him. Here, use it on the meteorite fragment. What are you doing? Dispersing the segment. Well done, doctor. (laughs) Nothing's happened. It's still working. (laughs) The Gronquist are here. Quite the opposite. Your meteorite has been dispersed. It isn't in the transport device anymore. Without it, there aren't enough dimensional space-time symmetries for a successful transfer. What? The Cronquist invasion force will just be reflected back into space. Diffuse harmlessly in an almost impossibly thin layer across the whole galaxy. No! Lady Ferrell began to disconnect the equipment beside her. Her stubby artificial fingers proved too clumsy to make subtle adjustments. She resorted to beating on the machinery casing with her clenched metal fists. But it was already too late. The glow suffusing the transport cabinet pulsed angrily. The effect on the Cronquist reversed. And the effect on the possessed Lady Ferrell was equally dramatic. She no longer had control of the metal. 
Instead, it had her at its mercy. She flailed on the floor, her face a mask of dismay, her legs kicking uselessly. Her hands clawed their way across the room, dragging her just like the digger had pulled itself across the village green earlier. Her fingers gouged chunks out of the parquet flooring, hauling her to the brink of the transportation cabinet. With one final shriek, Lady Farrell disappeared into its blinding, waiting wall. The cabinet exploded in a shower of brilliant sparks. The doctor ushered me towards the TARDIS. It's imploding. This whole place is about to go up in flames. Come on, into the TARDIS. No, wait, wait, wait! He stopped so abruptly I walked into the back of him. What about the segment? He hissed. It didn't transform. I dispersed it. I tried not to look too smug. It will have transformed into something else by now. We'll just have to locate it again. The doctor looked at me with that intense stare of his. Romana, he said quietly. I paused, expecting an explosion of anger. That's brilliant, he yelled. And with a huge grin, he swept into the TARDIS. A moment later, his curly head appeared round the door. Are you coming, he insisted. It's getting awfully warm out there. And you really should change those boots. I took a last glance around the burning observatory. Feral's folly is destroyed by Lady Feral's folly. I wish we'd been able to save her. But now she's scattered across the galaxy along with the Cronquist invaders. I suppose she got a chance to travel through the stars after all. <laughs>